The following sermon by Nelson Atwood was recorded at Noble Park Evangelical Baptist Church. For more information, please visit their website at www.noblebaptist.org.au That's www.noblebaptist.org.au We're singing the song and the topic tonight that we're going to look at is topic of worship. And all I could think of as we were singing was the uh, beautiful passage out of Revelation chapter 5. So just take your Bibles quickly before or as we get started. I'm going to read this, this beautiful scene. Revelation 5 beginning at verse 1. I'll give you a sec to find it. Beginning at verse 1, the Bible says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransom people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne, the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom, and might, and honor, and glory, and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven, and on earth, and under the earth, and in the sea, and all that is in them, saying, To him who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb, be blessing, and honor, glory, and might, forever, and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down, and worshipped. If that scene doesn't just grip your soul, you don't see that and see what, who God is. There's something wrong. There He is, the Lamb of God. One looking like a lamb as though it had been slain, and He's standing up. I, I never cease to kind of pause and wonder over the juxtaposition of those two ideas you, you think about a lamb that's slain. You think about a, a, a lamb at a slaughterhouse and it's flopped on the ground. There's blood. There's, there's no sign of life. And yet he describes him as a lamb having been slain. 
and he's standing. There's strength. There's over. There's prevailing. There's overcoming. And then that other the phrase there, he says every in verse 13, every creature in heaven, all the heavenly angels, myriads upon myriads of angels, every creature on earth and every creature under the earth, so even those in hell, in the sea and all that's in them. And they're all shouting with one voice, one rich sound to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. That's God's purpose. God's one overriding purpose in everything he does is to put up the Lord Jesus Christ and hold him up on high and say, this is the one we worship. And every single creature ever created by the marvelous handiwork of God bows their knee and lifts up their voices and says, he's the one. Everything is submitted to him. Now, this the topic tonight is worship, and, and we've been going through a little bit of a series on what we believe, and this really doesn't fit into that series. But the reason why we're looking at this tonight is a couple of reasons, I guess, and and one of them is a statement I heard uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones's granddaughter, I think it was, who said it. And she said that when my grandfather was preaching and he finished preaching and people left the church, there was a sense that we had all been in the presence of God. And Martin Lloyd-Jones, if he was alive, he would shout in protest and say it had nothing to do with the preacher and everything to do with God. And what I want for us as a church for the people of God, is that when we go out of this place, whether it's Sunday morning or Sunday night, when we finish worshiping here, we go out and there is a sense that we have been together in the presence of God, lifting up our hearts and our voices in worship. And I found online, um, I listen to online lectures because I drive 45 minutes roughly each way every day. Uh, it's a great time to listen to lecture. Most lectures are an hour long, so I can kind of overlap them a little bit. And I found a series on worship by a fellow named J. Ligon Duncan, who is an American Presbyterian fellow with a very deep, rich American Southern accent. And he was teaching on worship. And I was just, I listened to a couple of them over again. They were so good. And they kind of fueled my thinking. And it made me think about what we do. And we talked a bit about it on Wednesday night in our Bible study. And I thought, you know what, for a night tonight, let's just stop and put aside what we believe and talk about what worship is. And how we worship and maybe just fuel our thoughts. We're going to look at a lot of Bible verses and, and just make some comments and just encourage our hearts that what we are here to do, we're not here to listen to sermons. That's part of worship. We're not here to sing hymns. That's not our purpose. We don't come into a church to sing hymns. We come to worship and we do it by singing hymns. We don't come here just to pray. We come here to worship. And part of worship is praying. And I think sometimes in churches, the way we work and the way we function, we often put those things um, out of sequence. We put the emphasis in the wrong place. And I think the reformers, uh, some of you may have heard this before, uh, when the reformers went through Europe and changed all the churches, they went in and they took big hammers and they smashed the altars out of these old Catholic churches and got paint and rolled paint over all the old pictures on the wall. And they took the altar out and they put a pulpit back in place and what they did was they didn't put it up at the front like this one is. They put it on the side or in the middle. And the idea was the word of God coming from the midst of the congregation. And all the congregation gathered around it would worship as the word of God was preached and proclaimed. Right. So worship. What does worship mean? What is worship? Well, take your Bibles and flip over. Go to the book of the Psalms. 
Uh, it is the, the worship hymn book of the Bible. And it is a very powerful testimony that the longest book of the Bible, or the, the most chapters, I should say, not the longest book of the Bible, is the book of the Psalms. And it's almost center point in the Bible, the way it's located. And the, the expression of the heart of the believer in love and worship for the Lord takes that central place. And the Psalms fuel our thinking. Men under the inspiration of the Spirit of God wrote these Psalms to give us words and ways in which to worship the Lord. And the answer to the question, what is worship, can be found right in this psalm in the opening words. And it says, a psalm of David, ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. Sorry, I'll let you find it. Psalm, did I not give you the number? See, there you go. Psalm 29, I beg your pardon. <laughs> psalm 29. You mean you can't read my mind? There's not much in there to read, so it's not hard, really. Psalm 29, beginning at verse 1, and the psalmist says, Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord glory due His name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Then notice, notice the voice that comes up. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The, the God of glory thunders. The Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The, the voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth. He strips the forest bare, and in his temple all cry glory. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. Isn't it interesting that woven through that idea of how we worship is the idea of the Lord speaking to his people? That's amazing, isn't it? Puva made that comment this morning about how the word of the Lord is established. It's settled in the heavens forever. The voice of God speaking forth. How do we worship? We worship using the word of God. We worship in response to God, even with the words he gave us. We hear his voice and it causes us to fall to our knees and worship. Uh, I've said it before and, and like my brother-in-law even asked me about what was my purpose in ministry. And you say, what would be one thing or one of two things? Two things. Number one would be that I would preach Christ from every passage of Scripture all through the Bible. And number two, that we would have a bigger view of God. I think that's probably one of the biggest things is that our idea, our concept of God is just way too small. And as we've gotten big in our britches and big in our boots and we've gotten more technological and we can do great things. We put men on the moon and send little spaceships off to Mars and we do all these great things. And in our own estimation, we've gotten pretty big. And consequently, I think in our estimation, God has gotten a little bit small for us. And one thing I want us to do is have a vision of a great and a glorious God. It'll enable us to go through life and face all those things that we struggle with. But what is worship? Worship is those words, ascribe to the Lord greatness. And worship is the idea of value. How much do you value God? 
How high in your estimation is God and the value of God? You see, we all worship something. Every human being will worship in one form or another. We worship the things that we love. We worship our favorite footy team, which is a sin, unless, of course, you barrack for Geelong, then it's okay. No, I'm joking. It's not okay. We, we worship our favorite footy team. We worship lovers worshiping the one they love. We worship all sorts of things. And we place a value in something, and we love to express with our voices or with our actions, our, our doings, how much we value that thing. And what worship is, is to show and display to one another and to God himself that we value him above everything else. Like I asked you this morning in communion, I'll ask you again now, how precious is the Lord Jesus to you? How highly do you value value him? Well, who do we worship? And of course, the obvious answer is we worship the Lord our God. The Bible tells us in 1 Chronicles 16, 25, For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and he is to be feared above all gods. And we know there are no gods aside from God, but the idea is that everything else that can be considered God or worshipped or God or elevated is to be pushed down, and he is to be elevated above them all. In Psalm 48, 1, the Bible says, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, his holy mountain. Psalm 96, verses 4 and 5, the Bible says, For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. I don't know that how much those old writers knew about what they were writing. I think they were writing on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. I'm absolutely convinced of that. And maybe they looked up at nighttime and saw the night sky and said, wow, the Lord made the heavens. And their vision of the night sky was limited to what their eyes could comprehend. And now with our telescopes, those things we've created, we can see that the, the universe is something so magnificent and so huge. And he says, the idols are worthless. And then he can make a comparison. But the Lord made the heavens. And the, and the maker has to be greater, greater than the thing that he made. The Lord made the heavens. That's the greatness of our God. We worship God alone. We worship God the Father. In John 4.23, the Bible says that the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. We worship God the Son. In Matthew 14.33, I believe it's after the scene where Jesus is in the boat and the boat's being tossed around by the wind and waves and, he, and they wake him up and they said, Master, don't you care that we're drowning? And he says, shh. And the wind and waves, whew, still. And the Bible says that those in the boat worshipped him saying, truly you are the Son of God. You know, brothers and sisters, one of the, I don't know if I'd even dare say this, but one of the, possible negative things about having so many Bibles and so much access to good good biblical material is we become so familiar with the Bible in some senses, not, not others, that we've lost the sense of wonder and amazement. You ever watch a newborn baby and it starts to see something and, his, and its eyes start to be able to focus a little further away and its hands reach out and there's that just that awe-filled wonder of its little world and as it gets bigger, of course, it doesn't not so wowed by the little twinkly thing over its cradle. It doesn't think much of that anymore as it gets older. And we're like that a bit. 
We've become so familiar with some of these stories that we stop to allow the words to just sink into our hearts. He spoke a word and the storm and the waves were still. He spoke a word and they just were absolutely amazed by it. We worship the Lord. The angels worship God. And the answer, the question is, why do we worship at all? And the supreme reason for our existence is to worship God. God created us all with a purpose in mind. He gave us this one purpose that we would glorify him in everything. The Bible says in Isaiah 43, verse 7, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. You are made with a purpose. I know I've told you this before, I'm going to tell you again because it's worth hearing again. Every single one of us was made with a specific, defined purpose. We were made to glorify God. And you say, well, how do we do that? A myriad of different ways. We worship God as we go to work. We can worship God as we drive down the road. We can worship God in our relationships with our wives and our kids. We can worship and glorify God as we do church, as we have meetings, as we work together and play together, as we enjoy things together, all of those things. In fact, the Apostle Paul made it almost comical. He said, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do to the glory of God. Uh, John Piper preached a sermon, drinking a glass of orange juice to the glory of God. And he took that verse exactly what it says, whether you eat or drink. So if you have a glass of orange juice and as you're drinking it, do it to the glory of God. Do it to honor God in every single thing, great or small, that you do. That's our purpose. That's why we were created. God created us and saved us to be a worshiping people. I heard people say once in a while, you hear American preachers on the radio where we uh, lived in Canada. There was always these guys on the radio coming across the line from uh, Washington State. And I was saved by God to preach the gospel. No, you weren't. You know, I was saved by God to lead thousands. No, actually you weren't because God didn't need you to lead thousands. He could do it on his own. You say, why were we saved? Why did God save us? And I think this is one great answer. He saved us to be a worshiping people, to gather around the foot of his throne and exalt and glorify him, not because we're compelled to like those under the earth in a day to come. They will be compelled. They'll do it but they'll be doing it under compulsion. You and I gather on Sunday mornings. We have the privilege and the freedom to gather every Sunday morning and just offer up of our own free will and enjoy and delight, worship the Lord. We read this passage this morning, uh, 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. Peter writes and says, But you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people, get this, a people for God's own possession. Isn't that amazing? Let that sink into your head for a second. He created us to be a people like a temple was designed to house something. So the people of God are the temple of the Lord that he houses. He, he dwells in us. That there's a purpose here that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once we were not a people we were scattered and, and spread apart. But now we are God's people. Once we had not received mercy, but now we have received mercy. He made us a people that we may proclaim the excellencies of Christ. How long will that take? Forever. And <laughs> yeah, that's a purpose. That's why he created. That's why we worship. Well, why do we worship God? It's a great question. Why do we worship God? One simple answer. We worship God because God is God. 
<laughs> That's a great answer, don't you think? We worship God because He's God. We worship God out of a godly, reverent fear for God's person, God's nature, God's attributes, and God's works. One of the reasons why we that little series, and we never finished it, we just kind of took it to a point and stopped because it could go on forever, and the series of studies on the attributes of God. I wanted us to see how big, how great, how majestic, how awesome is our God. So that when we come to worship, we would have, we'd be fueled with the, the biblical concepts, the biblical understanding of the one that we are worshiping, and no, we'll never fully grasp it. But we're designed to be a people who worship God, and we worship God because He is God. He is omniscient, all-knowing. Try and get your head around this. Okay, let's take two people and eradicate everybody else in the world. So seven billion people, we'll just wipe them off, and we'll leave two standing there. And they're in the middle of the world. God knows everything about those two people. God knows every atom in every molecule of every cell in all their bodies and how they function. God knows everything that is they're going to do, everything they have done, and everything they possibly could do. And every reaction that one has on the other, God knows all the possible outcomes. Got a headache yet? Now multiply that by 7 billion and not 7 billion with like 3.5 billion doing with just 3.5 other billion, but 7 billion with the multiple possible relationships, and God knows every single detail. Now do you have a headache? <laughs> That's the God that we worship. It, it, ought, it ought to make us just stand back and go, wow. Where is that godly awe? Just to stop and contemplate the majestic God, the excellencies of our God. We worship God for his love. In Exodus 4, the people believed that what Moses had told them, that God had heard about their affliction and God loved them and God was going to deliver them. It says, when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. We often come in on Sunday mornings and we think about the love of God towards us. And it caused us to bow our heads in those moments and just worship for all that God has done. We worship God for his greatness. We said it before in Psalm 95. Well, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. One of the tragedies about our day and our language use is that we've gotten so used to using those words and using words like awesome, majestic, magnificent, terrific, all those, and we apply them to things that are sometimes far from awesome, far from great, and far from majestic, and we run out of words. Uh, fellow I'd met in New Zealand, Paul Washer, his wife used to give him the wagging finger. He said, "You just you don't have enough words to use." He runs out of superlatives. He tries to find a way to make God bigger with language. And we don't have enough words to do it. That's how majestic our God is, how great he is. We worship God for his holy presence. We read that passage in Isaiah 6 and those seraphim. And never ceases to amaze me when you stop and meditate on that passage and those seraphim all on their banks and, and arrays of uh, seraphim all lined up and they, their wings are covering their face and their wings are flying and their wings are covering their feet and the idea of their calling out back and forth one to the other is that there is never a moment in all that scene and all that existence that the angels can allow the, the 
space they occupy to have no pronouncement that God is holy. And so they just keep saying it back and forward, one to the other, holy, holy, holy. And it's like this beautiful chorus of voices stating, and I think maybe singing, but probably just stating back and forth that God is holy. His holiness is so rich and so great that the angels never tire of saying, look how holy he is. We worship God for his greatness. We worship God for his holiness. We worship God. There's some reasons why. And you can go back to the Bible and just take your Bible. And as you read through the Psalms, look for all the reasons that you can worship God, all the, the attributes of God that you can focus on and meditate on. And as, it, as you do that, it's amazing how your, your heart just lifts. I came in this morning and after our conversation on Wednesday night Bible study, I sat down here and I just kind of, maybe by my cold mannerism, I kind of let people know I wanted some space to just stop and open the Bible. And before I got up to lead worship, I had some time to worship and just focus my heart and my mind on the Lord to read the Psalms and meditate on what they were saying and think about God. And it just fueled my whole morning. How important is it for us as we come to worship to just take time to just meditate on who God is. Tragically, so much of Christianity is about God making you feel better. I got news for you. God does make you feel better, but that's not his primary focus. And one of the wonderful things that when we come to bless the Lord with our voices and come to bless the Lord as we read his scripture and pray to him and bless the Lord with the way we live is that we receive three times the blessing back, don't we? And we enjoy the Lord and we want to give praise to God. And then he just blesses our heart. And we have that tremendous peace, that tremendous joy inside from being in God's presence for a time. We worship God in obedience to his commands. The Bible commands us to worship God. There is acceptable attitudes in worship. True worship is not a mechanical repetition of rituals. If we come in every single week and we do the same kind of thing and there's just the, you know, you ever heard yourself singing the hymns? You know, you sing along, amazing grace, how sweet the sound. You know, you just, your mind is like miles away. That's not worship. And one of the reasons, one of the reasons I love old hymns, you ask my wife and kids, I'll tell you, I love the old hymns. One of the great dangers of the old hymns is they're so familiar to us, the words just roll off and we, we sing them, we know the tunes and we fill our lungs and we give great gusto of singing and our mind is a long way away. And the psalmist called us to write new songs. You know what I think that was? So men would learn to express their love and adoration and admiration for God in new ways. And we would use those new words and new ways and express our, and it would fuel us to think in different ways about God. It's like trying to, trying to examine the world's biggest diamond. No matter how far you go around to try and see the other side of it, you just keep going, 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 going. You'll never get to the far side of it. And every time you step a little bit more, you see something new you hadn't seen before, and that causes you to wonder at that. And you work a little further, and you see that, and you wonder at that as well. Right? We worship God, but it cannot be a mechanical repetition of rituals. That's dangerous. That's just mindless repetition, and God is not honored by it. We worship should be wholehearted and reverent. You ever watch footy players when the, when the guy scores the winning goal? <laughs> when Collingwood or... or 
Fitzroy, Fitz, which, what's your team, Ben? St. Kilda, man, sorry. St. Kilda, the Saints, right? The only godly team out there. You ever watch them when they score the winning goal for the premiership? You ever watch the fans? Sometimes I wish that those fans would come in here and teach us how to worship. No joke. They're so excited. They're so rejoicing in what their team has accomplished. And a premiership is nothing compared to what God has done. And we come in and we worship and it's not wholehearted. It's not half-hearted. It's probably not even one-sixteenth-hearted. We're so lackluster. And I'm not talking about jumping off the walls and leaping up and down and dancing and all that kind of stuff. I'm just talking about a wholehearted. When you come in to worship, engage and worship with all your heart before the Lord. Um, I, was, I had a verse here, but I've lost it. Never mind. Our worship should be in accordance with God's commands. We don't, we're not free to worship any way we like. We don't create new ways of worshiping. We, we worship according to what God tells us and what gives God gives us in the scriptures to do. We worship in a way that honors God and lifts up him and exalts his name. We worship in a way that's orderly and reverent. In fact, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 40 that our worship should be in order and reverent. It should be one that is in a sense of fear and awe and amazement at who God is. Our worship should be grounded. Here's the hard part. Our worship must, I'll add that part, must be grounded and supported by a godly, obedient lifestyle. Brothers and sisters, we can't walk in this door and worship God while we're living in sin. We can't walk in this door and worship God while there's unconfessed sin in our life. One of the reasons I think we need to come in here early and sit down in quietness before the Lord, before the service even starts is to examine our own heart before the Lord and seek forgiveness from God for anything we realize we have done. And God lays on our hearts that even in that moment we can be forgiven of sin. We can enjoy that peace of knowing we're forgiven and worship God from a heart that is right with God. I remember um, I did something, oh, I can't remember what it was. I did so many wrong things when I was a kid growing up and my dad was usually the other end of the wrong thing that I was doing because it was usually his rules I broke. And, and I knew I was in the wrong. And I was trying to buddy up to my dad to try and get on his good side. And I really hadn't dealt with the issue. And he knew I hadn't dealt with the issue. And I knew I hadn't dealt with the issue. And as much as I tried to buddy up with him, there was just this coolness between us, right? Because he knew he'd been wronged. And I knew he'd been wronged. And I'm thinking he's older. He should have more grace. But then he didn't, right? Well, no, I'm joking. He, he was a great guy. But there was a sense of which there was a coolness there. Our relationship was strained. And it wasn't until I went to my dad and confessed what I had done and sought his forgiveness that that coolness disappeared and there was a warmth, there was a refreshing of our relationship. He was still my dad. He still loved me. He still looked after me. He, everything was, that relationship had not changed. But the confession of sin and the seeking of forgiveness warmed and strengthened and renewed that bond between us as father and son. It should be the same as us. We come into God's presence and we sit in this room and we seek God's help to know the things that we have done that have offended him and we seek to put them right and worship with hearts that are clean. A worship must be grounded and supported by a godly, obedient lifestyle. 
There should be a preparation for worship. Examine ourselves. It should be wholehearted. It should be a confident approach to God. Hebrews 10, 23 to 20, 22 and 23 says, Let us draw near with hearts in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. But that boldness that we draw near with is not an irreverent, careless boldness. We don't just go striding into the presence of God without a care and a thought. I think often we come bursting into God's presence saying, Listen, Lord, your servant's speaking. That's not what it should be. It should be, Speak, Lord, your servant's listening. And we switch them around, don't we? And we have this idea we can come bustling into God's presence and just start to worship without any time to stop. And I think there is a sense in which we need to come into God's presence and sit quietly in His presence and wait for Him to speak in prayer. Wait for Him to speak as we read and meditate on Scripture and hear His voice deep in our hearts. I'm not talking about an audible voice in your ear. I think you know me better than that. What I'm talking about is that moment when you read those scriptures and the scripture leaps off the page at you and there is an impression of the weight and the majesty of that verse and what it says about God. And in a sense, you are hearing God speak into the very depths of your soul. We need to wait for God. We don't come in. We have boldness because we are sons and daughters, but we're not careless and flippant and casual. We come in with a sense of reverent awe. The Lord... uh, Deuteronomy 10 verse 12 says, And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. To fear the Lord. We talked about this a little bit on Wednesday night and the idea of what it means to fear the Lord. It doesn't mean to be trembling in fear. Not all, not all of that. But there is a sense in which there is a fear of God. He is the living God. The Bible says it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And yes, that verse is talking about judgment and discipline. But we never need, we must be careful, sorry, not to come bursting in with an irreverent sense. Uh, I, I struggle. There was a song written a few years ago, talked about Jesus, our brother. And I just kind of went, ah, oh, yeah, I know what the writer was trying to say. There is a relationship there between us, and he calls us his brethren, and I get that. But to me, he is always my Lord, my master, and my king. And yeah, he did clothe himself in human flesh, and we are brothers in that sense. But there's always that respect for God. We come in an attitude of reverent awe before God. What's our worship consist of? It consists of trusting him. We offer uh, right sacrifices and put our trust in the Lord. We don't offer sacrifices anymore. That's done because Christ faced it all. But we still honor God and glorify God through our faith. Our worship includes praise. In other words, he says in Psalm 22, verse 22, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. What's the difference between praise and worship? Worship is something we can all do. But we can only do it for God. We can only rightly worship God. I can praise my son and say, good job, son. You did a great job. And I am telling him how good his work is. I'm telling him how well he's done. I'm praising him in that sense. But worship itself can only truly be for God. 
We worship includes praise. It's telling of the great works of God. Uh, Psalm 107, let them extol him in the congregation of the people and praise him in the assembly of the elders. When we speak of the things that God has done for us and we talk about them in a reverent sense, look what great things God has done. Look how he saved me. Look how he has provided for us. Look how God has led us and cared for us and watched over us. And I think one of our problems is our view and our understanding of the things that God does day in and day out. We've lost sight of a little bit. We're so used to all the great things that God God does for us every single day. We take them for granted. If you talk to a brand new believer, it's a different story. They're so amazed by God's hand in their life. They see God's hand in everything. And we need to learn to do that and acknowledge God's hand in everything we do. Worship includes praise. Worship includes thanksgiving. Psalm 100 verse 4. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving, giving thanks to God and his courts with praise. Psalm 50 verse 14. Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. I believe one of the marks of an ungodly person in the New Testament is they are not thankful. We need to be a people who spend our time and, and invest time and effort and energy into giving thanks to God, to appreciating the things he has done. We're like spoiled brats at times. We forget how great God has done, how great things God has done for us, and we don't give thanks for it. Worship is to be joyful. It's not to be gloomy. I, I, we used to have a saying i got to be careful because this is being recorded. Uh, some of our churches in Canada, we had a certain worship service. It was called the morning meeting. And occasionally the guy, young guys would re- rephrase and re-spell the morning to make it a, a morning, M-O-U-R, we mourn as we say. And, and sadly, some of those hymns, I love hymns. I've said it before. I'll say it again. Sometimes the tunes, I don't know what they were thinking. You know, there was one that we were... We're coming on home. The guys, the musicians in our family, we're going, I've got the joy, 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 joy. And it's like the, the song completely denies the words of the song. Our worship is to be joyful. It's to be, there's to be rejoicing in it. There's to be a sense of the happiness. The, I know that's people say, oh, joy and happiness, not the same thing. No, I get that too. But there is to be a sense in which we have a delight it's to be something that we enjoy doing. We come together and we get, we get a joy and we have joy as we worship God. Our worship is to involve confession of sin. It involves reading God's word. One of the great things that Ligon Duncan made in that, that lecture series, he said, you know, worship means that we read God's word in worship. We pray God's word in worship. We sing God's word in worship and we preach God's word in worship. In that Psalm 29 The voice of the Lord, how much the word of God and the voice of God comes up in worshiping God. And so we use the word of God to worship God. So worship includes the reading of God's word. It includes praying God's word, taking the prayers of scripture and giving them back to God, praying them back to him. It also takes the idea of singing God's word. I have a copy of the Psalter, the the Psalms set to musical lyric, and I'm, I'm pushing one of my musical sons to take them and start putting some chords and making so we can sing the songs. That's a great idea to sing the scriptures. 
But more than that, it means singing the biblical concepts of the Bible. One of the things that the old hymns have so much over some of the newer stuff is the theology of the old hymns is often so much more developed and so better. Why is that? You know what? You know who wrote all the old hymns? It wasn't young guys in jeans and, and, and goatees. No, no offense to guys in jeans and goatees. I'm wearing jeans. It was old guys who were theologians and pastors and thinkers and writers and scholars. They wrote the hymns of the old generations. And they knew more of the theology of the Bible. Sadly, for some reason, out there at some point, we started handing off the writing of music to a generation that didn't know the scriptures as well as the older generation did. Praise God for... Uh, Stuart Townend and the Gettys. The reason why we sing so much of their songs is they take the music, they write their words, they hand them off to D.A. Carson and John MacArthur and say, check this out. Are we saying something wrong? Could we say it better? And D.A. Carson, who is a renowned theologian, scholar in America, goes, no, that's good. That's good theology. Sing it. And they, they sing it. That's why we use their music. It's got good theology. So worship includes music and song. By the way, worship does not require voice or sound. You ever think about that? It does not require a piano. It does not require singing. Why does it not require singing and sound? I made the, If you read that article I wrote this morning in the, the bulletin, you'll know why. Deaf people and mute people don't hear and don't speak. Does that mean they are banned from worship or barred from worship? No. Worship is this. It's a heart, yeah. It's a heart in love with God. Like I told you the story before, um, this fellow was speaking at a youth conference, and I watched the tape of it, and he said that he was in jail uh, for a crime. He was given 10 years in Florida State Penitentiary for a crime he did commit, and he got out on a pardon, and then he was saved in jail, and he got out, and a young girl was a, um, used to write to him. And she would send him all these beautiful letters, and he would respond. And one day she said, I want to send you a gift. He said, okay. And he got this little tape cassette in the mail. The tape cassette arrived, and he plumped it into the tape player, and he pushed it down, and he hit the play button. And as she began to sing, he just started to cry his eyes out. Because the voice on the tape player said, um, I don't mean to be offensive, okay. He love me, I know. And it was all over the place. No tune, no mouth. She sang worse than I did, right? I mean, which is hard to imagine. But she was singing with all her heart. And she, he met her. She had cerebral palsy. And she could barely could hold herself still in the, in the wheelchair to talk to him. And he was absolutely broken because he had a problem with his throat. And he was thinking about giving up preaching and giving up serving the Lord. And he suddenly realized that's what worship is. It's, it's the heart that loves the Lord. So worship, to be honest, it's got nothing to do with a piano, nothing to do with a guitar, nothing to do with music, everything to do with this. And if you love the Lord, I've said it before, everybody said it, make a joyful noise to the Lord. He didn't say make a harmonious orchestration to the Lord. Thank the Lord he didn't. He would rule out a whole bunch of us. Make a joyful noise. <laughs> His voice is going, mm -hmm, yeah, yeah, that'd be me, right? But worship includes music and song, and God in his infinite wisdom created music and gave us the ability to understand chords and sounds and all that stuff and designed it to be used to glorify him. But it's not necessary. You can worship without music. Well, our time is fast going away. 
Worship is not to be merely formal. It's to be heartfelt. Worship can be hindered by wrong relationships. We talked about that. Worship brings benefits and blessings for God's people. As we worship God's people, as we sing the songs, and we preach the word, and we read the word, and we pray the word, and we direct that worship towards God, the beautiful thing is that we all hear it. But sometimes we make the mistake into thinking that the worship that we offer in prayer and preaching and singing is all for the hearer in the chair. It's not. And, you know, often I worry about sermons and, and did, it, you know, was it, did it make sense? Did it communicate? And I often ask Heather, did it make sense? Was it, you know, too fast again, too slow, too long? I know they're all too long. I've heard that. You ask those questions. But you know the question I, I don't ask very often, I ought to ask every single time? Did that please the Lord? Did your prayer please the Lord as you got up? And even if all you could do was like that dear lady and sing, you know, Jesus, love me, with terrible voice and all of that, I guarantee you she pleased the Lord that day because she did what she could with what she had to honor God. And that's what God desires from us. But worship brings blessings and benefits for God's people. As we minister to the Lord's heart in worship, each of us gains and gleans something from it that feeds our souls and enables us to go on. And we can link arms as believers and go on and worship the Lord together. We have a wonderful God. A great God, a majestic God. Brothers and sisters, I plead with us all that we would have a much greater view of God, a much greater appreciation for who God is. And I think it would be a tremendous benefit for all of us as each of us takes and spends time in the Word of God to greatly enhance and enlarge our view and our perspective. When was the last time you sat with the Bible open and you just kind of shook your head and you didn't have words to say because what the writer was communicating in the text of Scripture brought to your mind and your heart the greatness of God and to realize that God had grace and regarded us and loved us and put, took mine for us to save us and rescue us. What an amazing God we have. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Loving Heavenly Father, we come before you again this evening. And Father, to stop and think about this, little, this topic called worship. It's not a little topic, Lord. And Father, to realize that you are the infinitely great God of all the ages. There is no God like our God. And Father, we stand here with our heads bowed and we are humbled by the thought of how majestic and how great you are. And Father, those seraphim never ceased to speak. Not for a moment was heaven silent with the idea that no one was pronouncing how glorious and how holy God is. And Father, Isaiah, confronted with that incredible view, I'm convinced, Lord, that he sank to his knees and pulled his hands over his head and just said, Woe is me. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And Father, he needed to be redeemed. He needed to be cleansed. And the angel flew to the altar and took a tongs and took a coal 
a burning coal of the altar that speaks to us powerful volumes about your justice and your wrath, the consuming of a sacrifice to cleanse the offerer. He took the value and the worth of that sacrifice and the coal and he applied it to Isaiah's lips. And Father, in a moment, that burning, glowing coal touched his lips and the sting of the burn and the touch of God on his mouth marked him as different for the rest of his days. And Father, you, you took him and you used him. And I'm absolutely convinced, O oh God, that for the rest of his life as he went and preached and spoke and wrote and declared the glory of God woven through his work, Lord, is so much of the glory of the living God. He never lost sight of that, that scene in the temple. I'm also convinced, Lord, that his lips bore the scar for the rest of his days of that burning coal. Father, I pray. I plead with you, O oh God, that you would take the coal like that and touch us. That you would open our eyes to see the majesty and the wonder and the glory of the living God. That he would so profoundly touch us and change us that we would be so marked and moved. That it would affect every aspect of our life. Father, I plead with you that you would do great things with Noble Park Baptist Church. Not for our sake, O oh God, not unto us, O oh God, but unto your name be the glory. Father, work through this little company of people. Change us, O oh God. Make us like the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, use us that others might see, not us, but see the glory of the God we love and serve. Father, we pray that our lives would be lives of worship led by the Spirit of God, worshiping in accordance with the truth of the Scripture, using Scripture, speaking it, reading it, praying it, preaching it, O oh God, that the people of God would lift up their hearts and worship as they hear and watch, and then they would engage and join in and worship alongside. Father, we pray that we would have a great view of God that our view of God would be so much greater than it has been before, that we would walk out of this place Sunday by Sunday saying, we have been together in the presence of the living God. Father, we ask you for these things. We plead with you, O God, that you would do them. And we ask in Jesus' name, for he alone deserves the answer. Amen.